Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. On today's episode, we have writer-director Dina Amer in conversation with the creator and star of Hulu's Rami, comedian Rami Youssef. The talk was recorded at the Angelica Film Center in New York City after a screening of Amer's debut feature, You Resemble Me, an innovative and emotionally resonant portrait of Asna Ait Boulassen, a radicalized Muslim who was erroneously reported as France's first female suicide bomber in the wake of the November 2015 Paris attacks. For Amer, You Resemble Me is a very personal project. Born and raised in the US, the Egyptian-American Amer began her career as a journalist, reporting on the Middle East for outlets like the New York Times, CNN, and Vice News. She covered Asna's story for Vice, repeating the authorities' belief that she was a terrorist and a murderer. You Resemble Me is, in essence, a corrective to that reporting, a deeply empathetic, lightly fictionalized portrait that charts Asna's painful childhood of family dysfunction through to her troubled 20s and ultimate radicalization by the Islamic State. Rather than leaving her as a reductive, one-dimensional figure of hate, it humanizes her and makes her story comprehensible. Amer was a film student at NYU when she started working on You Resemble Me, and over almost seven years persisted with the project through a series of setbacks to finally get it made on her own terms. During her epic quest to make the movie, Amer picked up a number of allies. Her executive producers include Spike Jones, Spike Lee, Riz Ahmed, and Alma Harrell. And one of those allies was fellow Egyptian-American Rami Youssef. The two met at a film festival in Egypt in 2017 when Youssef was gearing up for Rami, his breakout success which has earned him a Golden Globe and a brace of Emmy nominations. In celebratory mood at the Angelica, Amer and Yusuf reconvened for a wide-ranging and very entertaining conversation which covers the major deal that Dina turned down, Spike Lee's take on her doing the film her way, her resilience and what she had to give up to make You Resemble Me, her adventures trying to get Asna's family on board, and their reaction to the film, casting a quote-unquote super hot actor as Asna's cousin, who seduces her into radical Islam, and much more. So, without further ado, let's listen to that conversation. Dude, I can't, it's crazy that we're here. Well, so when we were coming in, it was really funny because you said something that I, that I was thinking about, but it it really took me back. We were talking about being, well, it was the first time we met. We were in, in Guna in Egypt, 2017, and it was the first Guna Film Festival. I went with your brother Kareem and Jahan, and I was like running around this film festival trying to find people to play my parents in a pilot that I was trying to shoot for, for Hulu. <laughs> and we were hanging out, and you were telling me about this movie you really wanted to make that you felt like you had to do your way. And you were kind of talking me through this whole opportunity that you had turned down because you felt like you wouldn't be able to make the film that you wanted to make. Could you just like talk a little bit about that and talk about how that has shown in, in, in what's happening here? So that was a critical moment where I had just left this big Amazon deal. Um, it was like a multi-million dollar deal. And I put together what I thought was 
you know, a dream team to bring this complicated story into fruition. And I walked away after months of negotiating terms. And I mean, I was just around the corner from signing on the dotted line because at the final hour, they wanted me to contractually define how much fiction was in the film. And to and they kind of, I, I feel, got cold feet from allowing this story to be a fully fledged narrative depiction of, of, of someone who was caught in the headlines and called a terrorist. They felt safer keeping this in a documentary space. And for me, that was a compromise that I just couldn't, I couldn't do in my bones. It just didn't feel right. And, you know, a lot of people around me were like, think of your career. You know, you have a bird in the hand. This is a multi-million dollar deal. Like, it's hard to get a deal on the table. Just make it work and think about the next one. And I had spent years, I mean, in this city, right, in New York, I was, I was at NYU on a scholarship, and I, I wrote the first drafts of this film. And What year was that? This was like 2015. Wow. This is nearly a seven-year journey that I've been on. And I was writing the script, and I had this dream to tell this story, and yet I didn't have the money. It was, everyone thought it was too dangerous of a topic and too sensitive. And I would come to this cinema, the Angelica, to find refuge. Mm. Literally, this was a, a salvation for me. Whenever I would feel really low and, and, and get worried that it was, it, it was gonna be too impossible to make this film. I would come here, watch, I would watch films, and I would get inspired and fed, and I would be able to keep going mm. on this journey to make this film. And so, when Amazon was like, listen, uh, we want it to be more of a documentary than, than a narrative, I was like, I haven't been sleeping on people's couches and barely able to afford meals to compromise at the final hour. I'm sorry. The story is powerful. These people deserve to be brought to life, you know, on their own terms in a complicated narrative that, that, is, that can be gray and not be held to, uh, you know, a black and white uh, factual uh, storytelling. So the, the fear was that you would be like romanticizing or we would be getting too close to the idea of somebody getting into this situation? Was that the, the fear that you perceived was happening? I think the fear was that there was red tape around humanizing a woman who was Muslim, Arab, and brown and caught in the headlines for being enchanted with a violent organization and being falsely accused of being the first female suicide bomber. That you know, Hollywood couldn't go there. We, we can't, that's too far in, to, to humanize such a woman. We can humanize, you know, other people who are, who are villains, you know, like through cinema, like Adolf Hitler and Jojo Rabbit or Ted Bundy, you know, in the endless films about him. But, you know, brown Arab Muslim girl who didn't even set off the bomb? No, 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 no. There's religion involved, you know, and, and, and you know, that term terrorism had been coined to, unfortunately, to Islam through the news cycle, you know? And so this film, as, a, as what I call myself a recovering journalist, was very much my, like, my way of, of, of showing, of, of kind of like doing right by all, doing right instead of all the wrong that the media had done in perpetuating that, like, that, that that characterization of Muslims and of terrorism and allowing 
people, especially people who unfortunately had been seduced into such an organization or been enchanted by ISIS, to exist within complexity. Because mm. I think this this film is really, um, it's so clear like how many systems are broken to put someone in a situation and to put kind of society in a situation. It kind of feels like everybody's really in, in, in a lot of pain. It starts obviously early on and then you can kind of see it in every relationship. Did you see the fracture in those systems from your work as a journalist? How, how did that open up and do, you know, you choosing to feel like, okay, this is the first thing that I want to write? Can I tell you, it was not a choice. It was, it was a necessity. I never in a million years would have thought that I'd be telling a story in France, I barely speak the language, nor about terrorism. That was the last subject I'd ever wanna spend seven years making a, a film about. And yet I was called to this. I mean, I have no other way to explain it other than it was, I, it was irrational and yet it was necessary and nothing else in the world mattered but telling this story. It became that urgent and it was, it was pulsing through my body as like my mission in life that I have to tell this story. It doesn't make sense. It just, I think these moments in life come to you where you are driven and thing, and, and even you look at the obstacles and for some reason they, they, they don't hold you back. They just, they, they, they make you run harder. I, I remember you telling me something and, and you have to correct me if this isn't exactly how you said it, but I remember you kind of feeling this, um, telling me that you felt a strangeness around the, the fact that she kind of looked like you, <laughs> you know? And, and then obviously you're like in the film. Can you talk a little bit about what those feelings are when these are the associations that we kind of see, you know, on screen of ourselves and a little bit about your decision to be in this because that was something that I think you were really wrestling with back and forth. And I think even, I think I had seen a cut, I wanna say it was like January, maybe January, 2021. Yeah, I saw a cut that you weren't in, and and we kind of started talking, and then I realized that there was footage that you were in, and I was like, oh, where where is that? So so talk a little bit about like because it, it it it's it's interesting to me because I think there was a level of kind of not wanting to work with anyone who would censor what you were doing, but then I think there's another layer that we face as artists where we then start censoring ourselves, and I feel like as someone who was able to see a few different versions of this, what was that battle like? I know I asked you like two questions, but there's there's kind of like the one of that seeing yourself in it and then and then a little bit about the self-censorship. Yeah, I mean, this whole journey kicked off with Hasna's family after I was actually at the scene of the attacks shortly after the bombs went off. As a journalist. As a journalist reporting for Vice News, reported just like every other media outlet at that day that Hasna was the first female suicide bomber, which was fake news. And I felt very guilty about contributing to a fake news cycle. You covered it as yeah, on with air. that sensationalism. Yes, because that was confirmed by the authorities. And that headline traveled the world and the damage was done. And not only that, two other women, her sister included, were implicated in that headline. And there, there was this question mark about who really was Hasna? Because of the different photos used. Because of the different photos that the, that the media published. And so I felt terribly guilty and found Hasna's mother's house. And I, you know, uh, was, was first bombarded by like these young guys from the hood wearing like Adidas tracksuits who were like 15 years old being like, oh, like, where do you think you're going? <laughs> like, to meet Hasna's mom upstairs. And they're like, 
get out of here. No, like no cameras. I'm like, no, but I, I'm Muslim and I speak Arabic. They're like, we don't give a shit. Get out of here. (laughs) And then they like ran after me. They're like, Hey, but if you give us your number, then maybe we can try to hook you up. And I was like, I'm good. But then I came back the next day and they weren't there. And I went straight upstairs into the building. I didn't even know which floor it was. I just knocked on my like favorite number and a man opened the door. And, he, and there was something very familiar about him. And he was like, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm trying to find Hasna's mother's you know, apartment. Do you know where she lives? He's like, she lives here. She's my girlfriend. I'm like, what? And he's like, and the guy was Egyptian. And there's not too many Egyptians in Paris. This is first knock. First knock. Wow. Door number four. All wow. right? <laughs> wow. And he's like, let me get her. And he brings the mother out and they keep me at the door. And we start speaking and Hasna's mother shows me a picture of Hasna when she was a young, young girl. And at this point, has she talked to any news outlets? No, she's turned first, everyone away. You're the first person to get the to her. The first person that she's allowed. I'm still at the doorstep, right? But she's shown me this picture. Of, she's like, if you want to know who my daughter is, this is who she is. She's this little girl. She's not the woman in the headlines wearing the, wearing the niqab who the, and who the media is calling you know, a suicide bomber. This is my daughter. And she said to me, you know, you, you really resemble Hasna. You, you laugh like her and, you know, you're naive like her. And it really, it, it, it like stunned me because there was this like uncanny point of reflection where the mother who had abandoned her daughter was saying, I am just like Hasna. And, and from that point, the film was really, it became clear that I could hook into something that made me the right person to tell this story. And that actually, as a human being, I needed to tell this story to unpack something within myself, within my own identity. That's why it was urgent. Because in fact, I saw myself so deeply in her. This wasn't about terrorism. It was about trying to navigate a ver- like an identity that you feel sometimes is in, is in contradiction with itself. And, and the struggle of that of trying to keep faith and also living in, you know, in the West. And like, you know, how, how, can we, how, how can I exist on my own terms as a Muslim woman? You know what I mean? And, I, and, and the finger honestly is pointed to everybody in society, to the West, to, to, to the so-called like, you know, authorities in religion, to everyone. Everyone is, everyone is, everyone is complicit. You know, so that point of struggle with an identity became something that and the schizophrenia of self that could derive from that Mm. when you don't have clarity of who you are. There's kind of like a yo-yoing within yourself that felt very rich and visceral. And, And from there, I could tell something that was honest. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata, 
and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. Just hearing about this experience, it's it's it's, uh, and maybe it's fair to say that this the depth in which you kind of went here is is this you know you use the word fake news for your first initial reporting and kind of it's kind of like a journey from from fake news to real news right to kind of really <laughs> digging in because I thought it was interesting that we went from narrative then into into doc and 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 real yeah. footage so there's something really grounded here it's kind of your artistic experience and interpretation and. I think you kind of get into that human thing where all of us feel like multiple, you know, we all have multiple parts, right? It's, it's a, exactly. It's, it's, and, 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 and you, you obviously show that. So speaking of the multiple parts, it's kind of the other question that I asked. So there's the part of you that wants to make this film, make it like totally fully honest. And then I think there was the part of you in the editing process that was maybe like, maybe this should have more documentary footage because I saw a version that did have a lot of documentary footage. So talk about those parts of yourself that yeah, kind of sure. probably, you know, pushed forward and said, you know, fuck everybody, this is what I'm going to do. And then kind of like, oh, maybe this should be a documentary, you know, at certain <laughs> points, you know, how do, how do you battle with that and end up with this edit? You know, this was a seven year journey, as I said. And so each stage of it was thorny and intense from the inception of choosing the story when it was so sensitive to dropping out of NYU to go make this film, to leaving the Amazon prod, uh, deal, to convincing actors to step into the shoes and, and humanize some of the most vilified and hated people across Europe. Every stage of it was hard. And then we got to the edit room. And because the, the groundwork of making this film was, I had understood like this, this is, you know, 130 people died. This is, this is sacred, you know, blood had been spilled. I can't just like parachute into Paris and, and, and just quickly like, you know, make a point and leave. Like I really had to spend time, years with the community and understand deeply before and reflect on what I was gonna say before saying it. You know, and so I, in the edit room, uh, no, sorry, just step back. So the, so the script was written out of 130 hours of interviews I had done with the, with the family and with all like the community that was connected to Hasna. And we had all this great verite documentary footage that in the edit room I played around at some stages like seeing how it would feel if it wasn't just straight narrative, if you had kind of like a, a Greek chorus of the family throughout the film at certain stages, like chiming in. I, we tried all sorts. We kind of had like a, like a bag of riches because we had all this, you know, strong narrative footage. And then we had all this also, you know, so much Verde footage that we could have used. And in the end, though, it felt very 
honest for me and important was that you got to experience Hasna as a child, you experienced her arc, and only at the end were you reminded that this is a true story with real life implications and, and that the family was a part of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was so impressive kind of, you know, watching this. And I think that that, yeah, that all that interviewing, all that interrogation, I think that you did not just of your subjects, but I think of yourself as really clear. And, and I think it, it was interesting too to see with your backing, you know, your background as a journalist uh, coming into a project like this, I really appreciated how much this was a fiction film, you know, in the sense of really just going for these character arcs and there are these really great scenes that are like mirrors of each other. I mean, on, on one level, there's just a lot of literal mirrors, which I think is something that we do see in film, but I couldn't remember the last time I really loved seeing mirrors on film in the way that I did here because it really was, it, it felt so appropriate. It didn't just feel like we were doing it to do it. It, it. it felt like it was happening at different stages of this woman's life. And I thought that was really amazing. Outside of the systems, I mean, uh, it, it, her mother obviously fails her in, in the beginning, but then it really feels like she's mainly coming up against men in her life who are obviously doing a variety of things that really scar her and, and really derail her sense of safety. Can you talk a little bit about that, that relationship that she has with men in the film? I, I think... I think obviously men play a big role because ultimately she gets seduced and, and brainwashed by her cousin. He sold her into having a family and, 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 and building a life together. Um, so ultimately, yes, I mean, that was, that was the seduction that ultimately killed her. But I really feel what was important to me in making this film was like not pointing to a single person or thing that was to blame. It was really pointing the finger at everyone and showing that, it was like, I just wanted to kind of unveil the different ingredients that led to this rotten stew of her deciding that it was a good idea to help her cousin find this hideout and and, and it was a good idea to, to, you know, become like enchanted by ISIS. Like, that was important because, you know, every time you try to peg radicalization to like a lack of employment or, or a lack of education or a broken family. You find someone who didn't struggle with any, any of that, but still radicalized. And the common denominator is really a fractured sense of self. And so that was what was really important to me. Yes, her family let her down. This, the, the French state let her down. She could have she died protecting France as a policewoman, you know? Sadly, she grabbed all our attention in this tragic way. And I think that was a really important point to make. I thought that you did a really effective job of not making, you know, a film that would be like, you know, <laughs> root for the terrorists or something like that. Or even I think I think it almost strips that word out. I don't even think this is this is about, you know, again, all these failures and seeing how they they kind of stir up in this person. So I thought that that was really effective. And and at the same time, I think you're you're gonna have people who tell you, you know wait, did you just, you know, romanticize Sarah's, you know, and you didn't help yourself on that level because you made the ISIS guy hot and all that. Like he was like, <laughs> you know, he was all like seductive and the big lips and all that stuff. Um, so that maybe you could have, uh, you know, maybe you could have done a, a slightly less attractive casting choice, but you know, uh, that's your, that's, that's your call. Um, but yeah, what do you, he, what, he was the only guy who was brave enough actually in France to play that role. Everyone mm. else was too afraid. They're mm. like, you want to, you want to put a, you know, a death knell to my career? Of course I can't play this role. And he honestly, he, he looked at it as an artist and was like, I feel like as an actor, I get excited 
about playing people who are very complicated. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, you should. That's what this craft is for, mm. you know? That's why we make movies. That's why to, to bring, to allow people to exist as more than just one thing. Because no one is just one thing. Even like the villain has complex emotions. And so, you know, this is the way I feel like we can process the trauma of, of these like senseless mass shootings that happen. Like we, we go, we come together, we get into a dark room and, and we watch something and it's hopefully cathartic and it helps raise other questions and it helps, you know, confirm the humanity of, of the people who are behind these headlines, which is important because thank God it's a human problem. That means that we can actually like have a chance at like relating to these people and, and come up with better solutions on how to deal with it. So you're kind of saying like it, the when you don't have a piece like this, you kind of can just throw it under, you know, uh, put it under the rug and just say, oh, these people are just monsters. They were just mental. They were just Absolutely. crazy. They were just whatever. And then it starts to feel unsolvable as opposed to kind of showing a portrait that says, wait, like, look at the the thousand failures that led exactly to this moment. And And guess what? There are there are so many other people in this world. There are so many hasnas, people who are on the edge of either finding finding within themselves a purpose and a way to contribute towards society or saying, you know what, screw it. I'm going to burn the place down and, and take as many people as I can with me. And that's a real thing. That's a real threat, especially in this country. So we have no choice but to talk about it and to, and to look at it from at a root level and to see the people who decide to find purpose and meaning through pulling the trigger, also as human beings. Because I do not believe that they came out of the womb being like, I want to kill people. I don't, I don't think that's true. There are dashed dreams. And there's other moments where people could have gone down a very different lane of, of, of a very different lane in life. And that's important to remember so that we can keep that in mind for the other people who are about to fall into the same trap. In your countless kind of interviews, do you feel like there was a specific prevailing theme that you thought, oh, if this thing was different, in her life, this wouldn't have happened, like this one thing? I mean, I think that it was, it's too easy to peg it on her family. Yeah. Because absolutely, she had a broken family and I think there were deep childhood wounds and that trauma haunted her as an adult, absolutely, and the separation from her sister. You know, her real sister, Mary, told me, please, I want the audience to know that we didn't want to be separated. That was really the, the, the breaking point for Hasna and, 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 for, and for Miriam. You know, like the real Miriam, I, I, sh I showed her the film and before we went to Venice and she told me she had a baby and she was showing me pictures of, of her newborn. And I was like, oh, I, like, where's your child? I, I'd love to, to meet her. And she told me that the child was taken immediately after after she was born, at birth, the, the state services took her because they, they deemed that she was mentally unfit. Because after Hasna died and after Marion was caught in the same headline, she something really cracked and she's been unwell. It's like kind of like she plays this film in her mind constantly. You know, oh, our childhood, when we used to wear the same dresses. Wait, wh who really was Hassan as an adult? W what was it like for her in that apartment with, 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 with my cousin? Could it have ended differently? It's, it's, and so I realized I was bearing witness to intergenerational trauma and the same cycle continuing that these young children 
you know, they were young children who, who went through the foster care system and struggled to reconcile their identity as Muslim French kids. And there, were, there was a consequence to that where Miriam at all costs just wanted to fit in and, and be white and get a nose job and speak perfect French and come off as just like, mm. you know, a white Parisian girl. Only in the end just to be called a terrorist like her sister. Right, so that 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 like offering of like oh la vie ensemble, which is like a French ideal. Let's like all live together, and you know leave who you are, your your heritage at the door, you know, and we'll just be equals. It's beautiful in theory, but unfortunately in reality, everyone's everyone's treated as where they come from. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? There is just discrimination, unfortunately, and so even though Miriam had tried with all, everything in her being to separate herself from Hasna, who was a troublemaker, and to just follow the rules, integrate at all costs, it didn't work out for her. She was called just the same thing as her sister, a terrorist, you know? And I think that's a really important point to remember, that, like, there's this emphasis sometimes of, like, well, in France, well, people should just integrate, but, like, it, it's a false promise because mm. there is real discrimination. Mm. How much of her family has seen the film? So Miriam saw the film and she loved it, thankfully. And she really felt that we had done a justice that the news had failed to do, you know, that we had like kind of salvaged this injustice that the news had committed. And she called it like angel work, you know, which I was really grateful to hear. Because in some ways, like she's the most important audience member, right? She very bravely shared her story with me. And, and so for her to feel like, like we, 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 we did a, we did an honest job and that it was, you know, it was beautiful. She wasn't expecting it to be like, she's like, I didn't, I, all these years we're doing it. I didn't understand in the end, it was actually going to be like, like, you know, pretty and stuff. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we worked really hard. And, you know, our DP Omar Malik did an incredible job shooting it, you know? Shout out Omar, he's in the in the house tonight. Oh, uh, how how was that getting? You know, obviously there's a lot of fear surrounding the subject. How was it getting such a great crew? You have a lot of really great producers attached to the film. What were those conversations like? I think they all thought I was like a mad woman, <laughs> to be honest. Like they had no choice but to support me because I was on this you know, life or death mission. I mean, I remember my brother, Kareem, who's also, he's a producer on the film and he's here as well. When we had the Amazon deal, I used to say in, in the room, I'd be like, I can make this film and, and die. And he, he would pull me aside afterwards and be like, please don't say that again. Like, it's not a good selling point. I'm like, but that's how I really feel. Like, I, I just need to make the film. He's like- And here you are saying it again. Yeah. <laughs> shamelessly, shamelessly saying it again. No, but that's, that's how I think, I think, you know, you have to, we were talking about this a bit earlier, like in order to make a film, it requires a great deal of faith because you are literally kind of projecting into and, and, and trying to rally, projecting into something that doesn't exist and trying to rally as many people as you can with you. And you're like, it exists, it's real, it's gonna be brilliant. Everyone's like, I don't know, it sounds really like, you know, dangerous and sensitive and not, maybe, maybe, choose, a, maybe choose a lighter subject. I was like, no, this is the one, you know? There, it, it, but I feel like when these moments in life happen where you just know you have to do something, you have, you have no choice but to listen to it for better and for worse. And so like, thank God, 
Thank God I didn't take that Amazon deal. Thank God I got to make the film on my own terms. And thank God I had an incredible team of people who stuck by me and made sure the baby was, was birthed. You know, like we went to Venice, we've won over 30 awards. You know, we've, thankfully the film has been very well received internationally on the festival circuit. Audiences have, you know, really embraced it and been shook and there's been rich conversations. And we still didn't get the right deal for distribution in the US. And we were like, what's the disconnect here? You know, I got like love letters from different distributors being like, the film is beautiful and da 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 da. Maybe we can work on something else, but this one's a little too hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for my 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 other producer, Elizabeth Elizabeth Woodward, who is a powerhouse and made sure that this film would go to theaters, and we you know we contacted all the theaters across the country. And we ended up here. And we're gonna be, you know, in chains like AMC and Regal and Harkins and other Angelica chains across the country. You know, but so this the spirit Yeah. So this thank you guys. So the spirit of this film has been like fiercely independent. Like Spike Lee, who was my professor at NYU. And he actually like, he was the only person when the Amazon deal kind of like took a turn and they wanted me to do re reenactments instead of fiction. He was the only one who was like, pray on it. And if it's not the film you want to make, walk away. And I was like, okay, but like, how do I make it? He's like, I don't know, just keep praying. <laughs> but, but, um, but, but basically, um, yeah, the, the whole journey was fiercely independent. And like, it makes, I'm just happy that in some ways, we're able to, to go straight to audiences right now and allow people to see this film and that there's an appetite for it. And that shows that people are willing to experience radical narratives. That, you know, that, 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 I feel that's like, that's like a win for, for other filmmakers out there who are maybe just like me seven years ago, coming to the Angelica with a dream of making a film and watching films to feel better about themselves and keep inspired and be like, but how am I gonna tell my, 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 my weird story or my crazy radical film? There's a way, just keep going, you know? Keep going, like you just can't, you're gonna fall down a million times, you're gonna have so many nervous breakdowns, but you have to keep going no matter what. Yeah, you, d you definitely. <laughs> No, for sure. It's like making anything, definitely. Um, I didn't have much of a social life, I have to tell you. <laughs> this was about it. It's like a full birth. Yeah. Who would you be most excited to watch this film in terms of audiences? Who, who, what, the idea of what kind of person or, or would be really, you know, I think shifted by this in your mind? It's people who would go into this film already thinking they have... Uh, having this preconceived notion on individuals like Hasna and kind of accepting the dehumanization of the news narrative and dismissing someone like Hasna as a monster because of that news cycle. Someone like that who could come and experience the film and realize, oh, wow, she was a girl who just wore a pink dress with flowers on it with her sister. And she was sweet and she was likable and she had dreams and she wanted to be a, she wanted to be a, a policewoman. And, 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 and shit. This is how she ended up. That's the person who, and, and I feel changed by that. I feel like now I see this differently. That's the kind of person I want to see this film. And I've had that reaction from many people. I had one of, one of, my, um, one of my mentors from the Sundance Labs is this, uh, she's, an, she's an acting teacher who's like a legend there. And she's like this old Jewish woman. And she was like, you know, Dina, I have to tell you, like, 
I used to always judge those people on the news. <laughs> She's like, and after watching this film, I really got it for the first time. She doesn't just get called a terrorist. She's also, she's also a girl who I kind of feel bad for, you know? And, and I was like, great. That's the point of the film. She's like, gosh, you almost made me want to convert to Islam. Dean. I'm like, well, you take it easy. <laughs> take it easy. <laughs> I don't know who that person is. <laughs> this is definitely. Yeah, I swear she exists. She's real. She yeah. loves she, she, was, she was joking. But no, the, yeah. <laughs> but, no, but she was saying, no, because she was saying that like, she understood that it's not the religion that is violent. And that is what the news perpetuates with the news cycle. That it was actually, this film is not about Islam. It's not about terrorism. It's about, it's about how a woman who is trying to navigate her identity and who feels very abandoned by society can end up taking a very bad, making a very bad choice and grabbing our attention in the worst way possible. That's what it's about. This interaction that you're talking about, you know, with this person is someone who is like really open-minded and they kind of want to see it. What do you think? And I think this is something that everyone's facing as they're making stuff. Cause I think people these days are just kind of watching what they want to watch. Right. It's like, you want to not believe in COVID. You watch Fox, you want to believe in it. You watch MSNBC, you know, you kind of pick, how do you view that as a filmmaker with a film like this to get into, you know, the house or the place of someone who might not be willing to see this. Do you think they even get a chance to see this? Or do you think it's just kind of like, you know, it goes wherever it goes? No, I mean, I, I, we are planning on bringing this to, I mean, communities that normally wouldn't get to see this. I mean, I want to take it into the prison system. I want to take it into like, you know, the Bible Belt of America. Like this is, it's really important that this film gets seen actually by, by audiences that aren't just liberal and progressive and open to, you know, hearing alternative. Um, Would, will you do screenings like this in, in, the, in the Bible Belt? Yeah, that's That's another documentary, just the... <laughs> the screening of Absolutely. this at the, <laughs> I mean, that would be, yeah. We showed this film in France in this very small town that's, you know, very, uh, very Catholic and conservative where the majority of people are elderly. And, you know, we had a standing ovation and we also had a couple of old white French people say, you seem like such a nice girl. Why would you want to hurt my feelings like this? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, I, and, the, and you know. The and they guy, left feeling hurt. The next day, they would run into me walking in the in the town. They'd be like, you know, I could I couldn't sleep last night, and I was thinking about your film. And but you seem so nice. Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want you to not sleep last night, old man. But like, it's good that you're reflecting on this story more deeply. That's the purpose, I think, of of, of art. That was another thing that I thought you did really well with the tone is that it definitely did not do any of that celebrity. You know, there was this. Yeah. There was this. Um, I would even say like a nauseating kind of sadness throughout it that I think like really spoke to the, yeah, it, it just didn't feel romantic. Uh, truly. I mean, other than yeah. again, that ISIS guy, but yeah, it, 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 it really, <laughs> I thought was very effective in that. Cause I think yeah. there can be the danger that something like this looks interesting to somebody. And, and it, I don't think it, it really did at any point. I think it really, um, I think it probably felt as bleak as her own experience did, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I got the signal a few times, but I was just like, love hearing you talk. I think uh, I personally just really, really proud of you and really proud of this oh, film. Thank you, I think Rami. it's a, it's it's a really important offering, and 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 I really, um, yeah, I feel like everyone here realizes, you know, how special this is. So 
Thanks for making it. Thank you, Rami. Yeah, this is a full yeah. circle moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. S screening yeah. at the Angelica. <laughs> yeah. Give, give it up know? for Dina. This and, is amazing. And having Rami here beside me. <laughs> after, I, after I had walked in from Amazon and I remember we were in Pune, I'm like, you know, we were swimming, you know, in the Red Sea in Egypt. And I was like, yeah. So I walked away from the deal and he was like, are, are, are you like crazy? <laughs> He's like, why would you do that? I'm like, yeah. I had to. And Yep, and like here we are, you know, with yeah. the finished film. So I, I'm really grateful journey. to live that arc with you, you know? Yeah, me too. Thank you so much to Rami Youssef and Dina Amer for being on the TalkCast podcast, and thanks to you for listening. You Resemble Me is out now and is expanding to theaters across the country. This episode was engineered by Carlos Fonseca and edited by Myron Kaplan. TalkCast podcast theme music, as ever, was composed and performed by The Branch. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkcast.com film, where you can read more excellent pieces than I could possibly list, including one by Dina's co-writer and cinematographer, Omar Malik. Subscribe to the TalkCast podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and go dig into our archive. I'm Nick Dawson, and until next time, take it easy and stay safe.